Australia has a highly gendered workforce. More than 90% of nurses are women, about 80% of primary school teachers are female, yet fewer than 14% of engineers are women. That's up from 8.5% in 2001, but progress in breaking down the blokey barrier is still painfully slow. My guest today is a role model for young women thinking of becoming an engineer, and she's doing her best to speed up that long overdue change. I'm David Glanz, and I'm talking in Brisbane with Leanne Bond. Leanne is the executive for diversity and inclusion at the major engineering and construction firm, Downer. She is also a fellow of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering and a member of the Academy's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Thanks for joining me, Leanne. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote an article not so long ago for the Academy in which you mentioned that you were asked, what's it like to be a female engineer? And you responded, I don't know. What's it like to be a male engineer? So let's rephrase the question. What's it like to be an engineer? <laughs> well, I think um, the, the reason I got that question so often was because 30 years ago there were so few female role models. But I think it is an issue of people in general not knowing what an engineer is, to the point that when I was uh, the first female president of Engineers Australia in Queensland, Talkback Radio afterwards, a lady rang in and said, isn't it great to have a woman in charge of the trains? And that's when I thought, uh, actually, we do have some work to, to do. So, you know, engineering to me is problem solving. It's taking the needs of the community. So I, I draw a big link from engineering to business and government and the community, providing um, infrastructure, but also solutions to, to needs that we have and turning ideas into reality. You mentioned that you were one of a, a much smaller number of female engineers. So what was your story like becoming an engineer? There obviously were barriers, but evidently you overcame them. What was, what was the experience like and what, what lessons would you draw for young women today thinking of becoming an engineer? Like a lot of women that I have met in our profession, I decided to do engineering because I loved maths and science. I, I enjoyed school. Um, I enjoyed the intellectual challenge. My father was actually in the industry, not an engineer, but within an, running an engineering um, firm. He was a, a trade background. Um, but he introduced me to a lot of people in the industry and I initially was going to be a scientist, but I came across the, the idea of um, an engineer and decided to do chemical engineering. So once I decided to do that, I enrolled my father did actually say, you know, what would it like be like for her as a female? And I probably didn't really understand why he was even asking that. And I think that's valid now. When I talk to young girls, they go, why is that an issue? You know, I think there was 11 girls in my first year class of 200 when we went through chemical engineering out of 27 uh, who graduated because it's a fairly small part of the cohort. Uh, there were five women. So I'd never felt isolated, but I often think if I had done civil or mechanical in that year, I would have been the only girl in a large class. Would that have changed my perceptions? One of the barriers I think is just our society doesn't really understand what engineers do. And if they do, they have a, a connection with male, you know, fitters or, you know, very hands-on, which is not the experience of a lot of engineers. So I think I didn't have any particular issues going through uni as a, as a female, 
but there was always that feeling that you had to prove yourself and and to be honest I just got on with it and really um, didn't accentuate the fact that I was female because I just wanted to fit in. When I graduated my father again gave me some very good advice he said you've just proved that you can learn how to learn so I came out with a thirst for knowledge and experience and everyone probably paternalistically you know helped me but I rapidly learnt you know that the things that I didn't know about the workforce uh, and I think that helped me in establishing myself as an engineer. I think there are, as you get more experienced, um, there are instances where people maybe aren't are overlooked because they're not part of the right set or the, the right clique, um, but that's where I'm working at the moment on diversity and inclusion to make sure every person, whatever gender or race, background they are has equal opportunity and, and is um, promoted on their merit. Well as you say you, you advise the CEO here at Downer on gender and diversity. Obviously the CEO is on site by definition but what's it like more broadly trying to shift the culture across an engineering firm which is by definition the majority of engineers will, will be male. So I work uh, with Brendan Peterson. He is a colleague that I have known in my career as an engineer, so we have a good affinity. He knows that I'm genuine about um, wanting to uh, shift the dial, but I also understand the business and, and the context. So I work with him and the executive leadership team. There's a, a thirst for wanting to um, welcome more women and more diverse workforce, but my role is really to help what should we actually do and implement programs rather than talking about it. So yes, I have the CEO and the whole executive team on board. And I would say generally across Downer, most people are on board, but uh, in this area, not everyone understands both the barriers, but also what you can do to dismantle, dismantle the barriers. So we are doing a lot in recruitment. We're also doing a lot in retention and promotion of our women and also um, making the awareness of the, of the good things that are happening spread across the business and also externally. So it's um, a number of different things you need to do. There's not just one thing that suddenly you're going to have a more diverse workforce. I think we're about 11% women and we're really focusing on a lot of scholarships for female engineers and, and other ways of bringing more women into the workforce, including in our trade area. And the kind of things that shift culture, are they big or little or a, a mix? I mean, I can imagine on a big construction site, just making sure there's, I don't know, female toilets is something which has to be thought about and perhaps hasn't been thought about before. So when I graduated, that was actually where the industry was. I turned up onto an oil refinery site and I was immediately told the story of, oh yes, we put in female toilets, but then she left. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's not really my fault, you know. So I was sort of seen as the replacement for the female engineer. And I'm like, well, I'm just an engineer and I happen to be female. So I think it was a really thing that, that the industry had to deal with, but that was 30 years ago. And I think now we're much more mature about making sure that we have the right facilities and it's not a cost trade-off of, you know, um, do we really need to do this? The way I phrase it within Downer, it's all about leadership. And you know, great performing businesses have great leaders. Great leaders are very high performing, both in business but also in their safety, 
and in their teams. So to me, the analogy that gets a lot of traction and no one will not come on board with is uh, inclusive leadership. So what does it mean to be inclusive? It means challenging yourself for any inherent unconscious bias you might have to not even consider someone that that is not you know within your team or doesn't look the way that everyone you've ever employed looks so that can be any dimension of diversity it could be cultural could be female the experience maybe doesn't have to be an engineer in that role maybe it's a lawyer um, maybe we need other skills involved in the team and that has a lot of traction and I think connecting innovation performance uh, diversity and inclusion together is a really powerful message. That's what I focus on. A number of organisations are beginning to experiment with um, blind recruitment techniques, which strip out, at least obviously in the first instance, um, uh, what person's gender is, their ethnic background, or presumably even their age. Are you an advocate of that technique? Well, we've, what we have done is we've had conversations with recruiters who are doing the shortlisting, but also conversations and, and training with the hiring managers. So that might be successful in the shortlisting, but at some point the, those characteristics are going to be un, unveiled. It's at that point that the hiring manager needs to understand the basics about what in what unconscious bias is, um, how they might be making associations just through their history that are very understandable but not valid. And so we actually have recently rolled out uh, a training package for every hiring manager when they request a new position. They have to do this online PowerPoint slide deck, which basically gets them to, to start thinking about are they framing what they're looking for too narrowly and obviously the legal requirements of not discriminating are, are reinforced through the recruitment and HR professionals that, that can advise them. So I don't think we've done a specific um, blind recruitment trial. I don't think that's really so much of our issue, but you know I might look at it. But um, I think we're so looking for diverse candidates that those candidates get a good shot at being on the shortlist. I think the issue is when you're interviewing, do you strike up an affinity with someone that you're like? And that's a very natural thing. So training the hiring managers and the HR advisors to look for and and identify when they might be slipping into that and saying, oh no, actually this person might be the best person. Um, and that's probably the area that I think we're focusing on. You mentioned a little bit earlier about scholarships. I note that you've actually established a scholarship for first-year women in engineering at the University of Queensland. Um, how's that gone so far? So I think I'm in my fifth year. So this is a personal scholarship that I've um, myself and my husband fund. Um, it provides really uh, the intention of it is to ease the first year of the um, uh, female going into the engineering course. It's quite a daunting course. It's not an easy course. Uh, a lot of people, they might have come from a very different school into a university environment. So it's really trying to signal to them, here's some um, cash to help you settle in, but here's someone that's on your side, so a mentor that you can talk to. After the first year, hopefully they've established some connections and will be able to go on their own way through there. So it, it, I have just been amazed by the quality of, of the applications we've had. 
I ask my scholarship applicants to have a real think about why they're doing engineering, what is the connection between engineering and business, how are they going to implement you know, their degree and they're very, very clever and they, they do think a lot about it. A lot of them are doing dual degrees, so they've already made a connection, they might be doing another um, arts type or business type economics subject uh, as well which wasn't really a thing when I went through, you, you just did engineering and then later you realised actually it's broader than that. <laughs> so what I've done with Endowner is talk to them about my experience and we've actually started a number of scholarships here with, in Brisbane with um, Central Queensland University which has got a regional base and we're just launching some with the University of Queensland as well. So we, we recruit graduates but what we're trying to do is also go back further into the undergraduate experience and give people uh, real experience in our business and um, hopefully they'll become part of our, our graduate pipeline. You mentioned uh, mentoring. As you know, the Academy runs a, a, a major mentoring scheme, IMNIS, that's aimed at the PhD level. Uh, and I know that there's a constant, people have to be convinced, busy senior people have to be convinced to give their time because by definition, an hour of your time is much more valuable than an hour of a first year engineering student's time. Have you found the experience of mentoring? Yes, look, um, to be honest, I, I am uh, very busy. I travel a lot, so I, I don't have a lot of face-to-face. -face. But what I do every year, after we've gone through the selection process and I've met you know, five candidates and selected someone, which is usually a very difficult selection, um, we then get together, the University of Queensland actually helps putting together a, a morning tea with the ones that have been in that year's selection, but also my previous year's um, scholarship winners. So what we're doing through that is forming a community among them, <laughs> and that has been quite useful, so I at least connect with them then, and then during the year if they reach out to me. So I think we as mentors can think we need to put a lot more into it than maybe we do because what I find is few discussions they get a lot out of that they don't necessarily need you know a, a lot of extensive time it's more just being available and and it, and it is a struggle um, I probably could do more but it's also connecting them with well have you thought about this or that as far as getting work experience to me one of the things I can do is try to help them connect with potential employers, you know, to get that work experience. On a different note, you're a member of the board of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and a non-executive director of the Snowy Hydro Board. How optimistic are you that Australia is making the transition to renewables at the pace that the science demands? So I, I am an optimist by nature. Um, I think this uh, transition's been on my mind for a number of years so actually when I retired from my executive role I established a company and it's called Breakthrough Energy because I want it to be part of um, the energy breakthroughs that I thought we we need. It has been 12 years since then. Uh, I think we are now doing it so it would have been good if we were more involved or more active in this 10 years ago but I think now we're actually seeing the change that um, has been coming. Certainly with Snowy Hydro we we have the Snowy 2.0 project which will underpin the stability of the network and 
allow more introduction of renewables. Um, we've actually contracted uh, a large amount of renewables ourselves um, and enabling those projects to come along. With Clean Energy Finance Corporation, they have a long history of stimulating investment in um, finance, clean energy finance, and working with other providers of finance, so working alongside banks and other providers. I know one of the, the apparently strongest arguments against rushing into renewables is that you know, when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, where does the power come from? Snowy Hydro 2.0 is very much about dealing with that problem. Can you just explain yeah. to listeners what's going to happen? Really a new industry in that area, which I think is, is very active now. And it might not be well known, but Clean Energy Finance Corporation is looked at globally as... Uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, green green banks. So I think we can be proud of that. But it is a huge task and restructuring and dealing with the next few years is, is an important task, which means helping the existing providers um, transition. So Snowy 2.0 is really taking the existing Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme and adding more uh, capability to that. Um, by installing a new underground power station which connects to existing dams. It'll allow us when there is um, an oversupply of energy, perhaps when the wind is blowing through the night and there's not a lot of demand, use that to pump up the hill. And then during, say, a cloudy day where we don't have as much solar as we would like, using that to fill the demand gap. So Snowy 2.0 is really the only technology that can can help us get through a, a long outage of renewable resources. Other technologies such as batteries and other ways of supporting the network will be able to fill in inter, you know, small small times during the day but won't be able to go for a few days. So I think 2.0 is a very essential part of supporting the introduction of more renewables into our network. Even when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, the laws of gravity go on forever. That is, uh, yes, stored energy. (laughs) Was there anything you wanted to add? I think on the energy transition, I'm I'm a very practical person. I have worked in almost every part of the energy sector from gas, coal-fired generation, oil refining, um, solar, wind, um, now hydro. I think that there are different technologies fulfil different roles and we need to be um, practical about how we make this transition for the best um, outcomes for our society. And I think that's the challenge and the excitement at the moment. I think we are, we are looking at it very seriously as a society and, and trying to make good choices for the current demands and for the future. Okay, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, thanks for having me.